The Talking Cure, Conversations with Jet Wheeler, is presented by the Office of Arts and Cultural Programming and Peak Performances at Montclair State University. Welcome to The Talking Cure. I'm Jed Wheeler, and today I'm with Valdis Setterfield and David Gordon. And they are, in my view, the Barrymores of postmodern dance. <laughs> they are indeed um, the Fontaine and Nureyev of performance. Um, and I have loved them as a pair and individually for more than 40 years. And one of the most remarkable aspects of being in Soho, in their loft, is this is where I met them. I met them approximately where I'm seated right now. And what I saw was one of the most transformative, inventive, mind-twirling events of my life. It was a duet with two metal chairs. And from those chairs, the world has changed as a result of the chairs. Don't misunderstand me. Those chairs exist. Those were living, being, animated objects given life by two of the most remarkable, inventive performers I've ever met in my life. And the two of them are right here together. And by the way, if I didn't mention it, they're husband and wife. How long has that been going on, Valda and David? This husband-wifery kind of thing. Valda, you better jump in, because he'll jump on top of it. It's all right. Do you know how long it's been going on? Well, 60 years it was in January of this year. Did you say 68 years? 60. 60. Well, well. Well, it's not so bad. In January of this year, the end of January, January 28th or 31st or something like that. Well, I think I landed in America on the 28th, but it may have been, a, it was obviously a different 28th. But that's when I, I came here to January 28th, 1958. It was when I arrived in America. Do you remember meeting David Belder? Yes, I met him at Jimmy Waring's, one of Jimmy Waring's rehearsals. The only person I knew here, really, was David Vaughan, whose oh, the book you may David well have Vaughan. written. Yes. And David had persuaded me to think about coming to America because there was an energy and an interest in dance which, didn't, which was not confined to the classical system which I was dealing with in England, for which I was never right, the right size, the right shape, the right everything, type. So I came and I met Jimmy through David Vaughan and uh, ultimately began to work a little bit with Jimmy and met David. Now the, the remarkable thing about what you've just said is that to the best of my knowledge, the David Gordon that you met was not a dancer. You can ask him that, and he'll tell you what he thought he was. <laughs> Jimmy had a, a great talent for finding out what people might be and could do. 
And it didn't involve, in my case, it didn't involve, oh, we don't do that here in America, we do it this way. No, we don't do that, because he knew about classical dancing too. So it was not a shock to my system, but it was a massive extension of thinking. Which it was such a beautiful thing you just said. It was thrilling. Really, it's such yeah. a beautiful thing. It's, yeah. It strikes me as the kind of the foundation of the work that you've done with David, that it's, well, it's it certainly. has no boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we met. Jimmy at that point was making solos, basically, for people. He didn't have his own studio. He worked for Time and Life. Um, so he rehearsed people alone at different times relating to their schedule or his. And we met and he said, you two look good together, let's make a duet. <laughs> and you said, David, you said... I said she weighs too much, I can't lift her. <laughs> and she said he doesn't know how to partner. And I said... All of which were true. was true. Absolutely. I didn't know how to partner because I wasn't a dancer, because I was, in fact... At that moment, when I met Jimmy, I was in college and I was a, an art student. And um, Jimmy uh, came over to me in Washington Square Park and said, you're a dancer. And I said, no, I'm not. And he said, you must come and audition for my company. And I thought, this is like Hollywood, Lana Turner. Uh, I just got discovered. Maybe, okay, I'll do it. And so I went there. I got the oldest pair of tights and the junkiest pair of shoes. And I went. And it turned out I wasn't auditioning. It turned out I was in the company. And I got to dance with the people who were already there in the company. And then along came Valra. Oof. And Jimmy, if I may say so, said a remarkable thing to me because there was a day when I was, we used to go to ballet class together and uh, then we would have lunch together and he taught me how to eat American food and what was a Western omelet and various things of that sort. But there was a day where I was quite gloomy and he said, what's wrong? And I said, well, you know, I, I can't jump, I can't lift my leg, I have no extension. I can't turn, and uh, it, it makes me unhappy. And Jimmy looked at me and he said, but you can dance. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in a new world. These are people who think of dancing in a way I never even thought of. And it was thrilling. And at that point, somewhere, we met where I was too heavy and you didn't know anything. But it was okay, it's because okay. I, I trusted Jimmy. I believed in what I was doing. Having grown up in a wartime England where everything was about trying to get me to be like type. Oh no, well you're not right for this and you're too tall for that. So if you bend your knees more, they won't notice. Or it was all about cheating, all of it, it was terrible. And Jimmy was one of the person, person who says, don't, don't think about that, you can dance. And I thought, oh my God, I won't even get on to Merce and John, but that's a different, the next thing, the next step, the freedom that happened. And this was part of the 
the freedom. Well, at, at, at the at the risk of, of segueing to something that you've just created, my goodness, all I've ever wanted in all the work that I've ever done is to discover what happened, what could happen, what will happen. And I hadn't actually made the connection to that moment here, watching two people I had just met because I was working for performing arts services at the time. And performing with objects that most people would not have included in any dance that I had ever um, been told was a dance. And do you, you want to understand how that came to be? I do. I certainly okay. do. Well, uh, we had been together for some amount of time. We had danced with Jimmy, we Valder was dancing with Merce Cunningham, uh, I was dancing with Yvonne Rayner, um, and then uh, we, we had a, a son at, by that time who was about 11 or so, and, um, and Valda uh, one year went in a car with a stranger to look at her house for a possible summer rental and the car was hit by a Long Island railroad train and Valder went partially through the window. And I was in Washington, uh, a guest performing with Trisha Brown at the Kennedy Center. And I got a call and uh, stayed up for the rest of the night to get the first train out to, from Washington to Long Island where Valder was. And um, came into the hospital and found Valder with uh, stitches all over her face and um, it was uh, it was a very difficult time, and we neither of us understood exactly what to do, and um, and we had some amount of discussion, and Valda discovered that her memory was not doing so well, and uh, one way or another. Time was passing. The Cunningham Company was on tour. Valda had keys to the studio. Uh, uh, she was getting to the point that she could now take a walk, but very slowly uh, outside. And so we went to the Cunningham studio uh, to see if we could just dance together in mm. some way. And when we got there, there was a bench, a wooden bench in the Cunningham studio and uh, I suggested that we do the um, scene from Giselle. Uh, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. And then I would fall off the bench when we got to the end and I fell off the bench and Valda laughed. And it was the first time she'd laughed since the accident. And I was very happy to hear her laughing and see her laughing. At which point the uh, Cunningham came back, Cunningham's all came back, but uh, by that time, uh, Trisha and Lucinda Childs had bought these studios in 541 Broadway, where we are right now, and they told us we could use their studios, so we would continue working in their studios, but they didn't have a wooden bench. But Lucinda had uh, about 50 pale blue metal folding chairs. She had bought all the folding chairs from a chicken wing restaurant in the village, which uh, had outdoor seating for all of the summer, and then they sold all the seating 
when the fall came because everybody moved inside into the restaurant. And Lucinda bought the chairs because she determined she would be performing in the studio at 541. And so now she had blue metal folding chairs for the audience. And so we used Lucinda's blue metal folding chairs, five of which are still here. And they became the chairs that we were using to make this thing. And I determined in the course of working that what I needed to do was make something Valda had never done before, had never considered being a possibility, because then she had nothing to compare it to. And she couldn't think she wasn't as good as she used to be yesterday. And so she got better and better, and her memory improved, and she did all the things, the ridiculous things I asked her to do on the chair. She fell backwards off the chair. She folded herself up into the chair. She, did, she could do everything. She could actually do everything. And by the time we were performing it, um, uh, uh, Valda also got a job teaching uh, in England, teaching dance. So I asked her to take the chairs with her and learn it all on the other side so we could do a symmetrical version because I wasn't smart enough to figure out how to do a symmetrical version, but she was smart enough how, to know how to do that. So she did, and that's how we did chair. <laughs> Fantastic. You know. And all I would quickly interject with Merce, after Jimmy saying, but you can dance, Merce, when I finally got there and took class and he said very, we used to go to the automat afterwards and we'd talk and we'd eat a lot of spinach. And he said to me, you have wonderful skin and I, that was funny. And we had, we had a lovely time. And, and he said to me, don't make everything so pretty. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about class. And I thought, that's what I grew up in England saying, you can't do it that way. You have to make it pretty so the audience won't notice that your knees are bent or you can't stretch your foot or you don't do, your leg doesn't go up. Or... So I, I had grown up sort of lying and pretending I was going to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. And I hated it. But I didn't know what to do. They were grown ups. They knew what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing. But Merce said, don't do it, make everything so pretty. And I thought, Oh, my God. I thought at first, what does he mean? I mean, my mother said, make it prettier, the teacher said. Look at, they'll look at your arms, they'll look at your smile if you don't. And I thought, oh, my God. I can give this up. I can give it all up, all the covering, all the shit, all the nonsense, and go to bare bones. And by God, I did. And he knew it. And we talked about it, mm. and he was sumptuous about his generosity, about mm. talking about it and how we dealt with it. And I was free for the first time, and it was abs and was glorious. And I've always kept that. I have never tried to sell something. I'm not really a fully trained dancer. I'm not really a fully trained actor. I do bits and pieces. I learn a great deal from theater people who I've always found generous. Um, I do little bits of studies with people that I happily meet and find out mm -hmm. about. But it was really those two things. You can dance and don't make everything so pretty. And I stopped. I thought, okay, no more faking, nothing. If it's small, it's where it is now. 
and it was allowed to happen by these new people that I started to be working with. And I was thrilled because I came here to learn, and by God, I was learning. Was it all easy? No, Yvonne Rayner said to me the first time I did something, she said, I want you to walk around the circle or everybody in the room, I'd never met them before. And she said, I want you to moan and moan and moan and stamp your foot as you go. And I did this and I sweated and got all wet and everything. And at the end of it, she said, well, no, not like that, but let's go on. And it was okay. I wasn't threatened by that. I thought, okay, I got something to learn here. So I, I was up and ready for all of it. And I got all of it. And you got all of it. There he is, <laughs> right there, right in front of you. You know, I'm, it, it, it brings up a thought that I've had for, uh, you maybe even heard me say this, but I, I thought one of the um, words that is uh, used that keeps people from seeing things um, is the very name of whatever it is that you're doing. In this case, dance. Um, so I'm just wondering whether the two of you could um, talk a little bit about how you feel um, those people that you're creating things for have evolved. I mean, are they now, are you finding audiences really don't care to know that it's called dance, that it's something else, that it's performance? Because the, the work that the two of you do together actually doesn't fit any sustainable category. Um, and um, from the, the very time I met you both, uh, I always felt in, that you and, and other artists that I've worked with were really of themselves. That, you know, that it was going to take time and for people to understand that what you're doing is what you do. It is dance, but it's not their dance. What's been your experience? the two of you with. Well, you probably get more asked than I because you were the, he was a maker of dance. I was not, I did not make dance. I didn't create things. I contributed like an actor might with a part. Um, and I think that the art world that we were moving into, or I seem to be moving into, didn't have those cut and dried positions and things at all. But you describe yourself as not a dancer. I, I find that, 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 to me, that is a, a very, 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 very brave statement. To well, not be I, something that you are. I think I'm a performer, and I'm still a performer. I think if I'm a performer who never loses that dance impetus, but physically, I mean, one has to be realistic. You can't do the things you did. You can't even try, you can't try them, particularly with the accident and age and all those things. But you can be there, you know. Well, one of the things I was- Goaded by the work. Could I- yeah. Go ahead. Could I just say, um, uh, number one, very important piece of information in relation to whatever it is I came to do in the world. Um, uh, I had no background in anything except 
I could draw pictures and I could read and write. And when I uh, graduated from high school, I won the art medal and my stuff was being published in the school magazine. And uh, I was not physical in, in any way. I was not a sports player. I, I couldn't catch a ball. I, um, I didn't have uh, friends who were sports people. I didn't have friends. Um, and uh, so at the moment that I begin to do this thing called dancing, um, number one, the only dancing I know is in movies. In movies, uh, MGM movies, in Technicolor movies, people are walking in the street talking to each other and suddenly they're singing and suddenly they're jumping up and down. And so I think that dancing is you walk in the street and you talk and suddenly you're dancing. And whatever that dancing is, it, if it's hopping, if it's crashing into something, if it's um, using props, uh, all of that is happening in movies. I am seeing everything in movies. And then I meet Jimmy, and Jimmy introduces me to Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns and John Cage. And these are the people I'm meeting. They, they, are, they are making art out of all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. They're putting all kinds of things together. So my putting something together suddenly isn't the most peculiar thing in the world. It's what everybody I know is doing. And uh, when I begin to find out more about dancing, it's because Jimmy takes me to New York City Ballet and because he takes me to see all of the people who are doing the things that interest him. And so I, I get to now see this kind of stuff. So by accident, as things happen, by the time that Barishnikov asks me to make ballets for ABT, well, I have seen the ballet, and <laughs> maybe I could make one of those. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but I get. I say I'd like to have some metal folding chairs because I see them in your studio, and I see everybody see, uses those chairs when they're not dancing. So I would like to know if I could have those chairs when people are dancing, and um, and so I get. I get to put together the various worlds that I have been gathering, that I have been lucky enough to stumble across, and many generous people have been very generous to me, um, and that has furthered the use of this material. And then at some moment in time, somebody says, you belong in theater, and I don't well, I, isn't this theater that I've been doing? Okay, well... There's that category again. <laughs> okay, start reading plays. And, uh, and I am offered things to do, and I read the thing, and I think, I don't know what to do with this. And then I am offered something, and I think, I think I could do something with this. And, um, and I am taking along with me all the things I have already learned in all these other places, because I don't have the sense that they don't share space and time. Well, when you decided to do Ionesco's The Chairs, were you feeling really cheeky about the idea <laughs> of actually doing a play called The Chairs? <laughs> well, 
a very long time ago before I met Valda and when I was secretly trying to find out in as a college student who I was and when I had secretly without telling my family uh, abandoned the English department and the fact that I was an English major and abandoned the fact that I was listed as uh, supposed to be in the education department and becoming an English teacher and gone instead to the art department where I wanted to be and met some people in college who were part of the dance department and went to be, suddenly I was dancing and got to be in a play called Dark of the Moon and I was the witch boy and, um, and I was dancing and acting and climbing over mountains, paper mache mountains. I, and I never told my parents and they never came to see me. And, uh, and nobody knew what I was doing. And so on the way, I discovered off-Broadway theater, and I discovered the theater on 4th Street, and I saw a production of The Chairs. I never heard of Ionesco. I had, did not have any idea what I was seeing. I just went to, t you could get $2 tickets, and I went. And so I saw it, and I thought, what an amazing, wonderful thing. And then time passed and I saw other productions and we saw a production together on Broadway of English people doing it. And I thought, this is not a good production of this. Everybody is saying this is the best production, but I don't think this is a good production. And then uh, Joe Melillo at BAM said, what do you want to do? And I said, the chairs. I would like to do the chairs. And then we bought 8,000 metal folding chairs sure, so that exactly. they would there would just be all these chairs. And, um, but every step of the way was, I believed, I did, I did not believe I did not have the right to invent whatever I invented next. I believed that the fact that you learn the next thing and another thing, the possibility of putting those things together the possibility, I mean, it was a sort of miracle that I met this person, not from my culture, not from my religion, not from my city, geographical, and this person said, yes, I'll marry you. What a peculiar thing <laughs> that was to start with. And Well, it was very interesting to have someone <laughs> in a field that I was really, really interested in, in finding out about who asked me to marry them, or how it, <laughs> it happened. But it, it wasn't somebody in an office, it wasn't somebody who, who had no idea of what I was doing. Um, and I, I didn't find that appetizing. Whereas this seemed to be exactly right. We had things to talk about, we, could, we were dealing with the right things. I was going against type which had been sort of fostered in me in my gro war growing up years after my first solo, which I'll get back to in a minute. And, and I was suddenly being able to give that up. And I was suddenly working with people who were also not interested in type. And how fantastic was that? I mean, it was, it was amazing. And Merce said to me one day, you're not vain. I said, what do I have vain about, I, you know? There's so much to learn, I'm not even thinking about that. And I wasn't, and I'm not really about those things. It was, it was great to have this 
sort of huge adventure all the time. Well, can, can we just both say for one minute, or can I say for both of us in yep. one minute, that for one minute, that a major circumstance that was happening to the two of us was Jimmy Waring. Jimmy Waring was mm -hmm. the person who put all the parts of these worlds together. Jimmy Waring was the person who, who took me, I must, you must come and see the collage of Schwitters. You must see the things he uses. You must see the found objects and the things that he then does something to, to make them be specifically what he wants them to be. Uh, and so these found objects that uh, Rauschenberg used, that Schwitters used, that were in people's paintings and in film. When you were looking at the, at the uh, uh, very surrealistic uh, films, w Jimmy took me to see W.C. Fields films. Mm -hmm. People jumped out of airplanes and landed safely in some other kingdom. Um, all of this well, produced a kind of way of dealing and looking at the world. So James Waring was a choreographer. James Waring was an impresario. James Waring was a, a teacher. Friend, a teacher. He was a great teacher. And, and uh, it, w it was because, because perhaps, perhaps he, he needed also to be somebody telling somebody else what to do <laughs> or how to live or how to get found. And that was very extremely useful because he also had enormous taste and talent. And what he did for me, another thing he did for me, he was, he was a member of the Museum of Modern Art and they were allowed to have a partner. I think it probably had to be a male, female or whatever. I became Mrs. James Waring on paper and it introduced me. It's like to getting a green card. What? It's like marrying somebody in order to get a green card. Yeah. You, ma you, yeah. you married James Waring yeah. in order to get permission yeah. to go yeah. to the Museum or, of Modern or, Art. Or he gave me permission to oh, go. Yeah. And it introduced me to the movie world, which in my growing up wartime England, I barely saw a thing. But suddenly, I was looking at movies and art and meeting Frank O'Hara, who also worked there. And it was another eye-opener into this amazing art world that I was moving into. The only other thing I would say about that is that the one person where I came from who gave me curious support was my father. Mm. We used to go racing together, horse racing. He liked horse racing a lot. We used to do a lot of things together. And there was a woman bookmaker called Mrs. Verney, who dressed like the Queen Mother. She had on a very beautiful hat uh, and p sort of pale lavender clothes and a fur. And she sat in a chair and she didn't speak to anybody. She nodded. And she had a group of men who did TikTok language. You know what that is? It, 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 it indicates how the booking is going. And you do oh. it with white gloves on. And you they can see it across the course. And people know how to bet. And, she did none of those things, she sat there. And my father said, she's the only woman bookmaker that we have, that we've ever had. Watch her, she's really interesting. 
and maybe there's something there that you might like to do when you grow up. And I thought, this is amazing. He doesn't want to put me in a category, safety, you know, at all. So uh, if, I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, you learned to move early in life from a female bookmaker. Well, I really learned to move initially because I was made a solo when I was about four. Well, and I was asked to do it at a garden party. And they warned me that there would be very little rehearsal because of circumstances. But I said, oh, it's okay, I'll, it's fine. And I went. And I stepped out, out onto that stage and I thought, this is wonderful. I mean, the air, the smell, the flowers, the women's hats. This is amazing. And I began my solo, which began by running in a circle. And I felt their attention, their support. And as I was running, I thought, there's that moment where the music changes and I don't remember what the steps are that I have to do. What will I do? Well, maybe when we get closer, I'll remember. And I didn't remember. So I thought, I'll keep running. So I ran for the whole dance. And I, I heard them respond. I heard them watch. I heard them laugh a little bit. But I thought, they're interested. They're watching. They know something's happening. They don't know what it is, but they like me. And as I ran off, which I ran until the music ended at all, I ran off to huge applause, and I thought, I love these people, and they love me. <laughs> this is it. And this is, I hope I can do this when I grow up. And by God, I've been lucky enough to be able to do that. So that preceded the Jimmy, the Merce, and all the other multitudes of people in various, at that point as we move, contemporary art fields who were busy not dealing with type and restrictions. We're putting things together in yeah, ways that yeah. no one expected to see. Yeah, so, so this was yet another, and I was, you know, I was game. I was willing to well, you know, try the, it. Have you seen... Um, the new adventures of old David, what happened, 1978 to 2021. That's the film that you folks made for peak performances, actually for peak plus. 28? The new adventures of old David. It's the thing that you looked at 2,700 times. So you have seen it. I haven't, I haven't, yeah. Well, my impression, I mean, is, is that it is a love story. It is a, uh, an unusual, nonlinear collage, assemblage, something that was put together, uh, assembled, borrowed, um, procured, um, imagined, and it's completely, completely beautiful because it's the rare object of abstraction and literalness bounded together. Um, and the source of the, if I can use the metaphor again, I mean, the glue is um, David Gordon's love for Valdez Setterfield. It's that simple. It's no more complicated than that. I don't see it any other way. I mean, obviously, uh, there are many people that are involved over time, 
um, that are represented, even our dear friend Ed Fitzgerald, who is uh, engineering this conversation, it makes a, a stunning appearance, actually. Um, it's wonderful. Yeah. That, that walking up the stairs and onto the stage, I love but that moment. It's, it's just a, wonderful. It's, it, you know, but it, it, it doesn't, it, you, you get yourself into all kinds of trouble by trying to say what it is. Um, except yeah, it is exactly. really quite special. I I think that uh, I have had a very lucky uh, time. Uh, I have met r remarkable people. I have seen remarkable work, um, but uh, I'm not sure how much I was would have been capable of. Uh, if I had not met Valda and, um, and not had a son. I think that the fact that the fact that I could do this sort of ordinary thing I was, didn't think I was capable of. Could I be with another person? Could I could I continue to be there? Could I be faithful? Could I? Um, and and then I had a, Valda gave me the best present I ever had, which is my son, our son. And now I spent 20 years um, with the three of us together, and. I think that they were the most important years of my life because I, I had to be, I had to be grown up enough to be responsible for other people and responsive to them. And I had to simultaneously not lose whatever was my foolishness. I had to be able to still be in some way foolish. And it has been, it has been the best circumstance of my life. And, um, and if it hadn't happened, I don't know that I would have made all the things I made. And I made them because I, I have spent 20 years trying to give back to the person I married. Um, something making it worthwhile having been married to me. And, um, and in the course of it, uh, I learned how to make a duet. I learned that a duet is a thing for two people. It isn't something that one person makes for another person. It is a person, a thing that has to be shared in some fashion. And we have not always agreed that the duet I'm then making next or have made next, that that duet is anything Valden really wants to do. So I'm making things for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to do the thing I'm making and is uh, generous enough to allow it to occur. Um, so the reality is that the, this um, old, <laughs> the old David, the new adventures of old David, uh, could not have come into existence without, number one, um, the new adventures of old 
I can't think of the actress name who's in Seinfeld and that, that was her series. That was her, the name of her series, The New Adventures of Old Christine. And uh, I keep looking at that title. Dreyfus? Thinking, yes. I keep thinking of that title as a wonderful thing for this moment in time. And uh, so it couldn't have happened without that. And it couldn't have happened without the history of what Valda did in relation to the work that I made. And uh, the fact that uh, every duet was somehow a, a, a public appearance of our love affair. Uh, our love affair, which ha happened uh, a great deal on the stage. And, um, mm -hmm. and it gave me the chance to, to have a relationship I never thought I was capable of. And I still don't think I'm capable of it. I think I'm a loner. And, um, and I have managed to have a life in which I didn't have to be alone from beginning to end, which, of course, has produced the moments in time when I blame Valda for not leaving me alone. Um, and, uh, uh, but I, I think it's a part of the work, and I think it appears in the work, so that there's a moment in time in this studio that we're sitting in um, in which uh, I write down the argument we have all the time. We have the same argument over and over and over again, and it takes all these years to have it so many times. And so I write it down, and I print it out on a piece sheet of paper that is 12 feet high, and I put the same argument, two versions, two printings of the same argument side by side on the wall in this studio, and in a performance that we give, I stand in front of one of those sheets of paper and she stands in front of the other sheet of paper and we have our argument. The argument we have all the time, except now we're having it reading from a script on the wall that the audience can all see. And then when we get to the end of the argument and say the last thing to each other, we just switch places and have the bloody argument again, this time taking each other's part in each other's role. Well, I think that's the thing I've been making all these years. I've been making David and Valda's argument and their love affair. And that's what you're looking at. And this final thing called New Adventures of Old David comes about because you, with whom I've had another kind of love affair, uh, you are, uh, make it possible to have this thing happen. And... Um, in the course of it, uh, uh, I get to tell everybody everything in my coded way. You certainly do. I think it's, I mean, the, the, the marvelous part of the new adventures, you know, is, is how unexpected it is. You, you can't, which it seems to be the hallmark of your union. In other words, you allow each other to be not what you expect. Oh, you know, and, that, and then, then you, that fuses together something new. Um, I'm, I thought, I, the, the film, I've seen it not as many times as Valda has seen it, apparently. Um, but I've seen it a few times. Um, and at first, I, I, 
I have to admit, when I was told that you were using Bolero, um, now, I, I'll, I'll say this with some caution. Bolero is my least favorite piece of music. And it also happens to be something that, as far as I can tell, everybody uses. I mean, it's, it's like, oh, let's do that, Bolero. I mean, what, what is that about? So I thought, oh, David, oh, please, no. However, you um, invigorated Bolero, the two of you, and it makes perfectly good sense to me. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a soundtrack, but it's a life lesson, you know, of assembling, of putting things together. And, and could you uh, understand that I probably would not have used it uh, I would not have used a symphonic version in a symphony hall. The putting things together, the assemblage, is the flash mob. Yeah. The fact that they are assembling it, right. that they are unpredictably uh, coming into the space in the way that they are coming into the space, and the space is not a space made for that to happen. All of those things are what's going on, and that's back to the chair. That's back to the, the unobvious thing used in an unobvious way uh, uh, in a presentational fashion. And that's what those people are doing in this thing called the flash mob. And I love the idea that it is called a flash mob and that you take any, any object, any piece of music, any speech of anything, and you suddenly assemble it by bringing in all the least obvious people at the least obvious times to begin to produce this single purposeful entity. Well, if somebody was coming to, I mean, it, it comes late in the, in the film. However, I mean, first of all, I don't expect people to watch only once. So, but it gives such potent information to all that's preceded, you know, it it is, for, in a very colloquial way, a kind of roadmap. You understand um, what you're seeing and what you're feeling as the people, the pieces, Valda's gestures as she's building um, the uh, archaeology of movement for the piece. Um, but it's not in um, sync with at all. It's in fact happens at another time. Your brain brings it back and then allows you to see what you had just seen. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Well, also, one other thing about this last number of years of work is um, when I began to make everything in the first place, uh, it included me. I was in it. I had to find a way to be in this thing in which I was discovering um, the great talents of the people I was working with um, who could do so much more than I could do. 
because I wasn't a dancer. Um, and so little by little, I was still trying to figure out how to be a part of what was going on, how to be a part of something that was happening from me with Valda. And eventually I said, I really have to stop doing this, part of this. And then uh, the circumstance that you're now describing it becomes a kind of freedom because I no longer have to be there. I am in no way a character. I am in no way a viewer or a responder. Uh, I am the invisible person who is making the decisions of who else mm -hmm. is there and what, what they're doing. And that became a, a, a kind of very different and freeing time for me. And, and this latest circumstance, the virtual, the working virtually, not with people in a studio, not with everybody close up, um, at first seemed to me like a, a deficit. Mm -hmm. And uh, soon after it started, I began to realize that it wasn't, it was not a deficit. I was dealing with found objects yeah. all the time. Exactly, and that was exactly. a very interesting thing to have happen. The um, you're making me remember a poster that um, we did or I did for the mysteries and what's so funny, which was uh, arguably about Marcel Duchamp. I would say, wouldn't wouldn't you say, as a, as a central character. Valda Setterfield was that vision, that individual. But the poster, however, was Duchamp's um, urinal, um, our mutt written on the side of it, and the line above it was an arrow that said, you don't want to miss this. <laughs> and we were... We made posters all over town with that. That was, you know. And, I, and I, do you remember that uh, we we did we used the same armut signature and put it on the back of every metal folding chair so that no Duchamp had now invented the metal folding chair as one of his art objects. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, uh, if I can I speak for a minute? You're right. Yeah, please. Um, okay. I would like also to talk about Ayn, because David knew far more about raising children just by virtue of being in a family where there were quite a lot, and he had bits and pieces to do with it, your brother and so forth. I didn't know anything, which was not happily a bad thing, because Ayn didn't seem to be a child who was nervous or needed anything excessive, and came on tour and was terrific and plain and interested and lively and supported Merce in very interesting ways that is another book and another story. But that was wonderful to have that and have him along and know he was there and we were okay. You know, I thought for a minute, oh God, I'm taking him out of school. Is he missing friends? Is he missing education? And I'm dragging him around the world in places that they don't eat like him, they don't speak like him. And then John became his friend. Not only his friend, John Cage. John Cage, yeah. His best friend. He, and it was because what John 
allowed him to do and how they exchanged things with each other. And I thought, I'm not doing the wrong thing. The kid is fine. This is wonderful. And it was seemed to be good with you, and it wasn't a problem with school. And my father, once again, when I left England, said to me, we went down to the Queen Elizabeth to the boat and a big to-do, and my mother didn't come, didn't want to be there. And my father said, so if you don't like it, just come home and we'll think of something else. Don't worry about it. So there was no kind of heavy weights or blame going on, which was really wonderful. And another thing that was amazing, you mentioned the mysteries, which of course everybody in this room at this moment was involved in the mysteries because he was the stage manager. Including yes. Elise, who's not in this room at this moment, but was very involved well, in exactly. the mysteries. Yeah, but there we, there we were, you know, and you came to me one day in um, Boston at ART and said, there's a, there's a man who wants to see you, but they won't allow anyone backstage after the performance, a company mm -hmm. rule. Um, I said, oh, I'm, you know, I, I will hurry as much as I can. I, you know, I had suspenders and a lot of male clothing on from work clothes. And, but I said, I'll be as quick as I can. And, and you came back again and you said, he says he'll wait. And I said, thank you. And I was as quick and I went upstairs and there was very little light. And there was this man standing there. And he looked at me very firmly and carefully and said, yes, I'm right. You have really absorbed, recovered, showing, revealed some aspects of, of Marcel. I am, he was, he was Paul Matisse. He had been married to Tini, uh, or his father had been married to Tini. They, she then married Marcel. And this child, Paul, came into the household as an adolescent. He told me all of this. Um, and Marcel was astonishing to him. And, gracious and warm and helpful and supportive and he helped make the little the the Boitonvilles, the little boxes in in a suitcase that were traveling art pieces that made and he talked to me for hours and he said it's wonderful that you you've done this you really have you really have found him and the only thing i had really done i think was read a lot the way i seem to know things I didn't train that much. I trained when I could, but I read, there was a terrific book by Pierre Caban that you used some of. But I absorbed that life, that country life, what his father did, what he did, what his life was like in New York. And I was so thrilled to meet that man. And we sat there in the semi-dark backstage at ART for a long time. And he then sent me flyers, he sent me posters, mm. he sent me letters. And I went, when I went next went to Paris, I went to see Tini again, and it was all about, oh, how wonderful you're here. We're having veal. Marcel loved veal. He was dead by then, of course. Oh, you're having white asparagus. We, Marcel loved the white asparagus, not the purple, but the white. We must have this. Ah, oh, we must sit you in Marcel's chair. 
which was a very special chair. They took photos of it. They warmed to me like you wouldn't believe. They were so generous mm. and incredible. I, I held little art pieces that he had made for Teeny that are not in galleries or anywhere. I mean, that would not have happened without you having made that piece and then allowed me to be Marcel in that piece or suggested. And the way I was, I dealt with it was About a that very way. long time before that. And it was great. A very long time before that, I made a piece at the Judson in which you took off all your clothes and was stripped down to pasties and a G-string. And right. in that, I made you wear your underwear clearly to be seen under your suit because right. you could see through it. I undressed her on the stage <laughs> numbers of times. And I had been then by posing for painters for $27 at the Art Students League, $27 a week, well, which was not very exciting until I met George Gross and I posed for that class. And that's another whole story. It sounds like another whole story. I'm, I'm going to tell you both that I love you very much. I but want you, you to know, know that uh, we have many, many other stories of to tell each other about our lives together. But personally, um, it is such a privilege to have been included in your creativity. The assemblage, the putting together of disparate, unusual objects, and to have included me. Very special. Thank so, you. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you.